Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, running single and holding down the fort for my co-host, Dr. Warmer Leon, who's off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. New evidence points to a CIA cover-up in the JFK assassination. Also, the Biden administration has crushed the rail workers. The Pentagon budget has grown as Americans struggle and a U.S.-backed opposition group has admitted to being behind protests in Iran. Joining us now to discuss these stories and more, we've got Caleb Maupin. Caleb is a journalist and author working out of New York City. Caleb, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Sure. Always a pleasure to be here. And Caleb, let our audience know about your fine works, what you're working on right now, and where they can find your info online. Oh, well, you can find my stuff. Uh, I'm on YouTube, Caleb Boppin, C-A-L-E-B-M-A-U-P-I-N. I also work with the Center for Political Innovation. We're at cpiusa.org. That's cpiusa.org. And Yahoo News, of all places, reports JFK assassination expert says CIA has proof Lee Harvey Oswald was involved in secret operation in 1963. I've been looking at this. Apparently, it is being alleged there's evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald was, in fact, working with the CIA prior to the operation, as it were, in which the president of the United States uh, met an untimely demise. Your thoughts on this, Caleb Maupin? Well, the more you look into Lee Harvey Oswald and his life story, uh, the more it becomes apparent that something's off. Um, You know, the whole thing is the guy's in the military, and then he defects, and he goes to the Soviet Union, and he works in a tractor factory for a few years. He marries somebody in the Soviet Union, and then he comes back to the United States, and he's just, you know, this is a guy who, like, walked off the job in the U.S. military and walked off the border to a country that was considered, you know, an enemy country then. That was the Soviet Union, and uh, nothing happens to him, and that's pretty strange. Um, and uh, you look at Lee Harvey Oswald's life, it is all very, very strange. You know, I recall uh, when that photograph surfaced uh, that, you know, was kind of a, a, a laughing moment during the 2016 Republican primary when uh, Ted Cruz's father was photographed standing next to Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, what was interesting was that photograph kind of lines up, right, is that, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was living in New Orleans, and he was involved with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which was a pro-Cuban activist group. And Ted Cruz's father was also living in New Orleans at that time and was also involved in pro-Cuban activism, admits he was, you know, sympathetic to Fidel Castro at that time. So it makes sense that that photograph would exist. And we also know that these pro-Cuba activist groups in the early 60s were heavily infiltrated by the government. The FBI was all over those groups. And uh, so there's a lot of questions there. Um, you know, now this is obviously not a smoking gun that proves the CIA killed Kennedy or something like that, but it does point to the fact that American intelligence had, you know, seen Lee Harvey Oswald as someone that they could involve in their operations, as someone someone that they had been talking about. And that is certainly an important revelation. And uh, we shouldn't shouldn't deny any of this. And this idea that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, this lone, lone, you know, socially awkward, mentally ill guy who was attracted to communism or something, that doesn't match uh, much of the record there. Uh, there's a lot of murky stuff as you look into his past. Um, and, you know, the, the story of who Lee Harvey Oswald was and what motivated him I mean, the thing that's always stood out to me is that the parade route that was printed in the newspaper was different than the parade route uh, that the the parade uh, where Kennedy was driving in his open car 
you know, that, that was a different parade route. So how does the Harvey Oswald know uh, where, to be, where to go? And the parade route printed in the newspaper, you know, for where the president was going to be going uh, was different. How did he know where to be at the right time? Uh, so that raises some questions as well. Um, but there are there are many, many questions about the death of John F. Kennedy. Um, and this is just a, another piece of information that will add to that. And, uh, the, you know, the world kind of saw the assassination of Kennedy as as some kind of political turmoil within the United States. There was there were disagreements within the power structure about whether or not to escalate with Vietnam. The fact that Kennedy had to some degree or other aligned himself with the civil rights movement, that brought back memories of Roosevelt and how Roosevelt had aligned himself with the labor movement and had really threatened the power of Wall Street in a lot of ways. And there was a fear that, that somehow uh, JFK could become some kind of Bonapartist, some kind of you know left-wing strongman. Uh, we had a really big, you know, and we still have a really big military industrial complex that didn't particularly like him. You know, many, uh, many People that were in the U.S. Armed Forces described how among the brass and the officers, there was kind of a celebration at the news of the death of Kennedy. Uh, and that, you know, there were there were billboards, you know, across the country accusing John F. Kennedy of being a traitor, of being a communist. The John Birch Society and other far right wing groups considered John F. Kennedy to be a, a traitor and an enemy. And that was that kind of thinking pervaded among the U.S. military brass and among some of the upper ranks of U.S. intelligence. So. The idea that, that John F. Kennedy's death was not the result of a lone gunman, but rather the result of kind of a power struggle within the deep state over strategy, over how to relate to the civil rights movement, over whether or not to escalate in Vietnam. It's not really that outlandish if you think about it. I mean, there's no, you know, it's not a crazy conspiracy theory at all to think that, that the death of a president of the United States might have more to do with a power struggle than to do with, uh, than to do with just a lone gunman acting crazy. But, um, but, you know, U.S. media has generally not allowed further discussion of this. Uh, it's generally, you know, been framed as this is a, an issue that's kind of off limits to discuss. Much like questions people ask about 9/11, much like questions people ask about the attempted assassination of Reagan by John Hinckley. Uh, you know, people people look at these events and say, is this is a political thing happening here? And generally, the U.S. media says you're not allowed to ask that question. Interesting uh, article from Chris Hedges. Know Thine Enemy, the expedited legislation passed by Congress to avert a strike by railroad unions dealt one more blow in the decades-long war waged by the two ruling parties against the working class. The only place I would take exception is that he said there's two ruling parties. And I, and, and, and as, as far as I can see it, you know, uh, there seems to be one. But your thoughts on, particularly Bernie Sanders, um, uh, AOC, people who claim to be democratic socialists, voted along with the machine to crush labor. Your thoughts? Oh, yes. I mean, it's particularly shocking. And, um, you know, the labor movement in the United States has attached itself to the Democratic Party. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of the hard-earned dues of labor union members get donated to campaigning for the Democratic Party, to supporting the Democratic Party. And at the end of the day, the Democrats turn around and they do this. Uh, you know, it'll hurt Joe Biden's administration to have a strike. The economy is already bad. So we're going to we're going to prevent the right of the workers to withhold their labor. Uh, and, you know, they, they have totally forgotten about the Employee Free Choice Act. Uh, Joe Biden mentioned in his speech the PRO Act, uh, a similar piece of pro-labor legislation that you know they seem to have forgotten about. And the relationship between the Democratic Party and the labor movement seems to be one that is not uh, not going both ways. Uh, the labor movement gives everything to the Democrats, and the Democrats forget about the Democratic Party uh, when it's time to vote on legislation. 
uh, and uh, they forget about the labor movement, and they don't give the labor movement what it asks for. Um, so you'll have to see how this develops, but this is pretty blatant. It's pretty hard to deny what happened. And I kind of get the feeling now, uh, based on some uh, uh, statements that were made by Representative Clyburn, now the Biden team is saying and the the Biden administration saying, well, I think we can sit down and work with the Republicans to get some bipartisan legislation done. Interesting that for the last two years, the Democrats couldn't get one thing done that they promised, anything to help the working class, the working poor or the poor. But now that the Republicans are in, you know, they, Caleb, I think they, they, they see the light of way that they can uh, probably give us all the shaft. <laughs> Your thoughts on that, Caleb? Oh, absolutely. Um, and the, the Democratic Party, uh, a lot of what Joe Biden said in his speech, uh, you know, his joint uh, joint address that wasn't the State of the Union after he first got elected about rebuilding the country's infrastructure, about hiring people, about the minimum wage and all of this. A lot of it sounded really, really good, but none of it ever happened. Uh, it was just it was just made for TV. Um, and then before the midterms, he was talking about how half the country are Nazis, half the country are fascists, you know, and, and he's demonizing half the country. And then he didn't have the losses expected in the midterms. They did lose control of the House of Representatives. But uh, the Biden administration just continues to be yet another Democratic administration where, you know, the, the progressive forces that want to stop the wars, that want to protect our civil liberties, that want the labor movement to get stronger, want, you know, better jobs and health care and education for the American people don't get what they want, uh, but the Democratic Party leads them on and then expects them to, you know, vote for, expects the public to vote for them in the next election. TASS is reporting. The ringleader of a U.S.-supported opposition group, Maryam Rajavi, has admitted to organizing the recent riots in Iran. The Tasnim news agency reported on Thursday, citing the information posted on Rajavi's official website. This movement was well organized by the Mujahideen el-Khalq organization with the use of rebel centers. Tasnim quoted Rajavi, who heads the MKO, as saying, We consider the National Council of Resistance of Iran established by us as an alternative to the current regime, she said. This remark was deleted by Rajavi from her website several hours later. Your thoughts, Caleb Maupin? Well, Miriam Rajavi is the spokesperson and the leader of an organization called the Mujahideen Akalk. And M-E-K, Mujahideen Akalk, um, means People's Holy Warriors. Uh, they are a terrorist organization, if there ever was one. They've conducted suicide bombings and assassinations. They have murdered Americans uh, during during the the the, uh, the 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 era preceding the Islamic Revolution of Iran. They killed a number of Americans. They were Americans they took hostage. They were American you know diplomats and others that they killed. Um, and then after the Islamic Revolution, when it became clear they weren't going to be part of the new regime, they they were. Too socialistic in their rhetoric, they were they were more of a hard left kind of Marxist Islamic group rather than just straight up Khomeiniist. Uh, they went on a you know a bombing campaign. They they killed 81 members of the Iranian parliament by blowing up the parliament building. Uh, the current supreme leader of Iran can only use one of his arms because uh, he had a press conference and they snuck a, a tape recorder in and blew it up and and he you know he can't use one of his arms because of them. Uh, this is a notorious, violent, extremist terrorist group uh, that was being armed by Saddam Hussein. Uh, Saddam Hussein airdropped them into Iran during the Iraq-Iran war where they raised villages and slaughtered people. And they're just a, a ruthless band of, of terrorists. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. And they were on the U.S. government's official list of terrorist organizations until Hillary Clinton delisted them. Uh, and now, you know, they, they have people in the United States, they have people in France, and they have people in Albania. Most of their followers are in Albania. 
Um, and because they're against the Iranian government and against the Islamic Republic, suddenly this group that was designated as a foreign terrorist organization that has killed many people, including Americans, uh, they're totally all, all okay with the U.S. government. And they are a source of recurring disinformation about Iran. At one point, they did a very big press release announcing that they had a picture of the safe where the Islamic Republic, they keep their nuclear weapons program secret. And they, they did a whole press release about it. And all kinds of mainstream media outlets said, wow, you know, they found the safe where the nuclear weapons secrets of Iran are stored. Well, the picture they had was if you Googled safes, it was on a website. It was from a website that sells safes on the Internet. It wasn't even a photo from Iran. They had just, you know, taken a, a photo and cut and pasted it and said, we have something. And it was, it was just lazy work. Um, and they come out, you know, I, I, I follow this stuff. I get Google alerts once a week. They come out with some crazy story about Iran that is it is not true. Um, and uh, every so often, mainstream media takes one of their disinformation pieces and quotes them as if they are a legitimate, correct source. And honestly, um, you know, yes, I am sure that they are heavily involved in activities against the Islamic Republic in Iran, that they are one of the factions that is trying to overthrow the Islamic Republic, along with the Pahlavist monarchists, along with the Sunni separatists. There are different factions in Iran that don't like the government. Um, but this statement, this particular statement by Miriam Rajavi, I think it's more Miriam Rajavi trying to you know, uh, overblow and emphasize her importance. Uh, she wants more money from Israel. She wants more money from the CIA. And so she's trying to, you know, say, look, we are the center of this. We're the ones that are making all this, this unrest in Iran happen. Look how important we are. She's trying to, uh, exaggerate their importance, uh, so that she can get, uh, more, more financial and political support from the forces that don't like the Islamic Republic. Whereas it, it seems pretty clear that, you know, while, while, her forces are certainly involved, and while the Pahlavists, uh, the forces that want to bring back the monarchy and the Shah are certainly involved, while the Sunni separatist forces, they, they are certainly involved, um, it seems like there is another layer involved, that there are elements from the lower levels of the Islamic Republic that are joining these protests as well, that the reformist movement, people that were aligned with the previous president, uh, you know, Rouhani, uh, you know, people that are wanting to kind of water down a lot of the Islamic principles of, of the Islamic Republic. They are involved in this, too, and that's the decisive factor. You know, Miriam Rajavi and her people have been against the Islamic Republic from the beginning. They've killed all kinds of people. They're a well-known terrorist organization operating in Iran, backed by the United States, backed by Iraq previously. That's, that's what they are. But at the end of the day, these protests in Iran wouldn't be as big as they were if there wasn't a, another decisive element, which is lower levels within the Islamic Republic. There are you know, just like Trump, you know, draws support here in the United States from a lot of Republicans, you know, and that, you know, yes, Joe Biden can call him a, a fascist and say they're on American movement. But it's very clear that within, you know, a lot of red states, a lot of sheriffs and a lot of police and all that are supporters of Donald Trump. The reason that these, this, these protests in Iran have taken off is because there are in wealthier neighborhoods in northern Tehran and in some of the bigger cities and in some of the universities. There are a lot of people that are government officials that are lower level that have reformist views, uh, that buy into American media and are skeptical of the Islamic revolution and such, that are giving some kind of tacit support to this, this movement. You know, it wouldn't, it, it, it wouldn't have gotten going and kept going for as long as it did. And I think that's the decisive factor. And I think that American intelligence and Mossad and Israeli intelligence, they realize that, uh, that this is, this is in a way, uh, similar to, you know, the fall, the fall of the Soviet Union in the strategy that they're using, right? I mean, if you read the writings of Mike Pompeo and others, they, they are actually applying 
intelligence methods that were applied to the Soviet Union in the 80s, they're applying it to Iran. And they see the reformist movement. They, you know, they see Rouhani and the reformist elements in the Islamic Republic. They see them almost as the Gorbachev, right, as the elements that will get in there and, and, you know, use their power to kind of throw in the towel and take the Islamic Republic apart. And that's, that's their, main, their main force is kind of this, this fifth column they have within the Islamic Republic which is, in, in light of these protests and in light of the unrest, is being actively purged. I mean, the hardliners are marching ahead. The hardliner camp is, is zooming ahead because I think the Iranian people who lived through, I mean, many of the, the older folks in Iran can remember how bad it was in the 80s. I mean, how awful the Islamic Revolution and the wars that followed were, and that they just don't want chaos. I and mean, there's a lot of people in Iran, I think, who are you know, they, they may be critical of the government. They may, may have you know, concerns about human rights. They may not agree. But they also look at Libya and they look at Syria and they look at Iraq and they look at Afghanistan and they say, you know, Iran has been lucky because we've been a very stable country for the last few decades. We haven't had, you know, different groups, you know, contending for power. We haven't had bombs going off. We haven't had, you know, political chaos. And that if the Islamic Republic were to fall, the result would not be Iran just becoming a more stable country. Uh, the result would be clearly instability. And Iran is surrounded. It's got Iraq on one side. It's got Syria on another side. It's got Afghanistan on another side. They can see with their own eyes uh, the result of the USA destabilizing and overthrowing your country. The amount of refugees they've taken in from Afghanistan. You walk around you know, downtown Tehran, you see people begging on the street. And they're, they're not, you know, they're not you know, Persians. They're not Iranians. Uh, you know, they are they are Afghans, you know, uh, and that there are there are all kinds of Afghan refugees who poured into Iraq. So they know what the result of U.S. regime change operations are. And I think that a lot of Iranians are saying, look, we, we may not agree uh, with the Islamic Republic. We may want some reforms in this area or that area. You know, there's concerns about the gap between the rich and poor, which is the highest it's ever been since the Islamic Revolution. But at the same time, they don't want to see Iran cast into the chaos uh, that, that was brought, you know, by the United States. Millions of Americans lack adequate health coverage, but the Pentagon has a new nuclear bomb to flaunt. This ominous death machine with its price tag of $750 million a pop brings huge profits to Northrop Grumman, but takes our society one more step down the road to spiritual death. Peace peace activist Medea Benjamin said of the new B-21 Raider. You can find that at CommonDreams.org. Your thoughts, Caleb? Well, again, you know, we never seem to run out of money to spend money on the Pentagon, to spend money on wars and military operations around the world. I mean, the U.S. government always has more money for death and destruction in the military-industrial complex, but the health care of the public seems to be left behind and forgotten in many cases. And the Democrats have continued to make noise, like they are the party that wants to give people health care, but they're not doing it. Uh, They are not providing it to the people. Well, you know, Caleb, what's interesting about this is $750 million per plane. And the, the, the mission of this plane specifically is in a nuclear war to ensure that no human beings on Earth survive. We're making a gigantic investment for a suicide pill at a time when we've got homeless people, when we need more money, when we have people who are trying to live and having difficult times. Our government's focus is spending a tremendous amount of money on ensuring that everyone dies. In reality, isn't this simply a sign of the decay of capitalism? I would, I would argue that it is. And that, I mean, the fact that even such machines are even being thought of, I mean, why are our smartest people not trying to figure out the opposite? You know, we've had the U.S. life expectancy go down in the last couple of years. 
Uh, you know, why are they not trying to figure out how to solve those problems? Why are we not trying to figure out how to you know, use our resources better to provide for the population, expand living conditions and, and make people make people have a more comfortable life? Uh, the fact that this is where our smartest engineers and scientists are working on is uh, some kind of doomsday machine. Uh, that's that's certainly disturbing. This is the stuff of uh, disturbing science fiction novels. This is the stuff of Dr. Strangelove. Uh, this is frightening. And to me, it's the inevitable end of a system where everything is for profit. You don't care what the mission of this is. You don't care what it stands for, what it symbolizes. The only thing you care is we can make it for $250 million, We can sell it for $750 million, And in a system where nothing matters but profit, that's a logical thing to do, Caleb. Indeed, it is. And it's certainly disturbing. We've been talking with Caleb Maupin. He's a journalist and author. You can go to, what's your website again, Caleb? CPIUSA.org. CPIUSA.org. A lot of good work being done by Caleb Maupin. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Peruvian President Pedro Castillo has been removed in what some suspect to be a Western-backed coup. Also, a U.S.-Africa summit is being held in D.C., and the president of China is visiting Saudi Arabia. Joining us to talk with, about these stories and more, we've got Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, a historian, and a researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. People's Dispatch reports, the coup against Pedro Castillo was led by an odious right wing that refused to accept the people's aspiration for a progressive project. I'll add this. Our dear friend, Dr. Wilmer Leon, always says the hegemon does not go quietly into the night. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, certainly the opinion that yourself and Wilmer Leon have expressed has been echoed in the hemisphere by President Lopez Obrador of Mexico, incoming president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, the former president of Bolivia, speaking of Evo Morales. As they see things, you had a left-leaning president in Peru, speaking of Mr. Castillo, who was sabotaged. In fact, he's now under arrest on a military base outside of the capital Lima, and the opponents and detractors of the now-detained president argue that this was a simple case of mismanagement, misrule, incompetence, and corruption. But as the aforementioned leaders in the hemisphere suggest, those kinds of charges have been routinely used against left-leaning president. Recall that Lula da Silva himself was detained for a number of months before winning the election uh, just weeks ago. Uh, recall as well that there was a similar kind of coup against Evo Morales of Bolivia a few years ago. And recall that as we speak, the former president and current president of Argentina, speaking of uh, Madame de Kirchner, uh, has just been uh, convicted she claims that this is an attempt 
to derail the possibility of her returning to the highest office in the land. So in any case, I think that there is something to the opinion that you've expressed, that Wilmer Leon has expressed, that again has been echoed by left-leaning leaders in the hemisphere. And to that end, uh, not, do not allow me to let this moment pass without talking about something that should be of consequence and moment to your audience. I'm speaking of the ongoing campaign to destabilize President Lopez Obrador in Mexico in the current issue of Foreign Affairs, the elite journal published on the posh Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, there is a scorching attack on Mr. Lopez Obrador. Uh, that has been echoed uh, in the pages of the New York Times, speaking of their op-ed writer, uh, Brett Stevens, who has long-standing ties to the right wing of Mexico. And given the unfortunate history between Mexico and the United States, with the United States waging war in Mexico in the 1840s, uh, seizing uh, California, now purportedly the fourth largest economy on planet Earth, uh, we should take uh, what's happening in Peru, very seriously, we should take Mr. Lopez Obrador's comments very seriously as well about Peru. You know, I, something just rung a bell briefly. I was, uh, we have reported here that um, uh, the Mexico had a, um, uh, uh, pro, not a protest, a rally in support of AMLO. Upwards of a million people showed up and they were, the government was talking about the many, um, uh, you know, things that they've done to help the people, et cetera, here over the last week. And it just dawned on me, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're pushing back against what will likely be some kind of a regime change move by the U.S. empire. Does that, does that sound reasonable? I'm afraid that it does. And recall that we were, we were talking earlier this week I mentioned that a particular emblem, as Washington sees it, of its security is the fact that it has on its borders neighbors who were either friendly like Canada or that have been bludgeoned like Mexico. And Mr. Lopez Obrador is trying to break out of that the model. And as Wilma Leon suggests, inevitably there's pushback. Here's a very important story. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Um, U.S. to hold African summit to deepen relationship, address shared challenges. Now, that's what the U.S. says. Deepen relationship, address shared challenges. My thoughts immediately go to AFRICOM. Um, and that is a challenge, but it's not shared. Your thoughts on the um, upcoming Africa summit? Well, it's a sign of desperation. It's a sign of the fact that the United States is becoming ever more hysterical about the closer relations between China and Africa in particular. Uh, keep in mind that what has boosted the United States and its North Atlantic allies into the pole position on planet Earth has been precisely the exploitation of African resources, the exploitation of African people, speaking of the unlimited African slave trade, and this upcoming summit in Washington, D.C., is an attempt by Uncle Sam to play catch-up ball to try to uh, nip China at the pass. And ultimately, of course, there's the male fist, AFRICOM, as you mentioned. 
The other thing I think that is important, the U.S., and if I could get you to comment on this, the U.S. empire in its, uh, you know, grandest form is has AFRICOM, and it's working to, you know, separate China to block Russia, I mean, excuse me, to block Africa from being able to do business with Russia and China. Your thoughts on the relationship between, um, or shall, shall, shall I say, the humongous fractures between these African former colonies of France and, and and current day France, what's going on, Mali, et cetera, they are pushing France away. And I think the U.S. is taking notice of that also. Well, the restiveness in what used to be called in the battle days French West Africa is a direct result of the rise of China, which means that Senegal and Mali and Chad and the other nations of the former French empire uh, now have options. They are not locked in to this abusive relationship with France. Uh, recall that Mali has just shown French troops the door. They've just asked them to leave their territory, that they're not serving a useful purpose. And once again, reference here, the recent trip to Washington of French President Macron, and certainly on the agenda in his talks with U.S. President Mr. Biden, were attempts to tighten relations between Washington and Paris so that Africa can be more usefully exploited, uh, I would like to say and I would like to think that those bad old days are over. Moving uh, just a, a bit north, uh, President Xi, uh, China reports that um, Xi's Saudi trip to open up new prospects for China-Arab ties. China's intensive head of state diplomacy is set to continue in December, and this time the focus of attention is Saudi Arabia and the broader Arab world. Uh, President Xi Jinping arrived in Saudi Arabia Wednesday afternoon to attend the first China-Arab State Summit and China Gulf Cooperation Council Summit. I do remember... um, uh, Russian Foreign Minister uh, Sergei Lavrov. I saw pictures of when he met with the Gulf Cooperation Council, and they were, you know, receiving him with smiles and handshakes. It seems that the same thing's going on with China. And my understanding is they've signed upwards of thirty billion dollars in deals. I think this is a very important meeting. Your thoughts on um, on this? Very important indeed. And once again, I'm afraid to say you cannot separate what's going on in Saudi Arabia as we speak from the aforementioned subject, speaking of U.S. relations with the African continent, because Saudi Arabia, as you know, sits just across the Red Sea from the Horn of Africa, speaking of Eritrea, Ethiopia, uh, Djibouti, just to name a few. And Washington is very upset with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Washington feels that the Saudis stabbed uh, Mr. Biden in the back when they refused to play ball with regard to oil prices just before the November elections. There is talk in the international community of the Saudis moving away from the so-called petrodollar. That is to say that you have to accumulate U.S. currency in order to buy the lifeblood of your economy, which is petroleum, which is barrels of oil. Uh, Supposedly, uh, China and the Saudis will deal in the Chinese currency and then the Saudi currency. Uh, This is nothing new. Recall that Russia is trading with China increasingly, with rubles and the renminbi, trading increasingly with India, with the rupee and the ruble. And a footnote also to our African discussion, Ghana, which is under enormous pressure 
from the international piranhas and vultures, speaking of the International Monetary Fund, Ghana used to be called the Gold Coast. It still has a considerable amount of gold, and it's increasingly trying to use gold to purchase oil as opposed to dollars. As pointed out by a writer in the Financial Times of London just a few days ago, this is also very significant because it shows how the international community, even smaller countries like Ghana, which whose population is probably about 10 or 15 million, are increasingly uh, trying to readjust and move away from the dollar-centric economy, which is bad news for Uncle Sam. Staying on China, um, the issue of uh, China's relationship with um, the EU is very important in that the U.S., as we know, the U.S. empire is, you know, the um, uh, confrontation, shall we call it, with Russia right now is part of a greater confrontation. It is their ability to their or excuse me, their inclination to attempt to hold on to a unipolar world that has already passed and to um, confront both China and Russia to knock them down to size. And therefore, the U.S. empire is once again the unipolar power. However, there seems to be some issues with um uh, 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 the EU going along. Here's an article. Schultz's remarks encourage Europe not to misjudge China's rise. Blindly follow the U.S. experts. It appears that a company, my understanding is I believe 38% of BMW's sales were in China. It seems that there is some balking going on um, at, uh, su- at economic suicide uh, part two for the EU. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, Chancellor Schultz, as you well know, just a few weeks ago was in Beijing with a plain load of German business executives. It seems as if Berlin is willing to play ball with Uncle Sam with regard to Russia, but it's not willing to necessarily play ball with regard to China. Uh, This is totally understandable given the close and tight trade relations between China uh, and the Federal Republic of Germany. In that regard, I would hope and I trust that an enterprising journalist and or investigator will look at the recent arrest in Berlin and in Germany of these supposed coup plotters who had ties to neo-Nazis, who supposedly were going to try to do ill, shall we say euphemistically, uh, to (laughs) Chancellor Schultz. Uh, I would hope that Uncle Sam was not involved, but given the fact that Germany is festooned with U.S. military bases, it seems to me that we cannot rule that out altogether. But before I make that statement definitively, I would hope that a journalist of repute would look into this a bit more closely and carefully. What do you think about um, the visit of Emmanuel Macron? He came to Washington. He dined on uh, shrimp and lobster with President Biden. He uh, implored him to uh, change the direction of, 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 of industry, which is from the EU directly to the United States. And it seems that he was sent out with, a, with empty pockets and empty rhetoric. What do you think about that, and how do you think that affects things going forward? Will the ruling elite in the EU actually do anything, or will they just put their head down and take it? Right now, it's difficult to say. What I mean is that, as your comments suggest, there are legitimate beefs and disputes between France and the United States, between the European Union and the United States, 
with regard to the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which provides subsidies to U.S. corporations, uh, which then would encourage uh, Western European corporations to set up facilities uh, in North America in order to become beneficiaries uh, of the subsidies uh, from Washington. Uh, Mr. Macron and his class are very upset about that. But at the same time, there is a so-called Trade and Technology Council that unites Brussels and Washington, that unites the European Union and the United States of America. Increasingly, the United States and the European Union are becoming ever more hysterical about the rise of China, and they're seeking to band together in order to confront that rise. In fact, uh, there was an article in the New York Times the other day about how they're seeking to ally, particularly with regard to steel and aluminum, so as to unite their paltry forces so as to block China in those two important realms. So on the one hand, you have conflict between Brussels and Washington, reference my previous comment about the Inflation Reduction, Reduction Act and the subsidies that uh, Mr. Macron sees as inimical to European interests. On the other hand, you have cooperation, not only cooperation with regard to China, but cooperation, as we know, uh, with regard to confronting Russia. So it's difficult to say which trend will win out. Uh, probably it turns on how fast and how rapidly uh, China ascends in the global political economy. And right now it's ascending with hurricane speed. Here's something important, and I tell you why I think this is important. And talking to some people who are very familiar with the political dynamics in Taiwan, you're very familiar with the elections that happened a, a, a week or two ago, wherein the ruling party took a thrashing, shall we say. I was told that one of the that this was mostly based on domestic e economic issues, and one of the issues was that people in Taiwan feel that TSMC, the big chip maker, that is their you know, that's their thing. That is the center of their economy. That's what they're proud of. And that they were unhappy about this. CNN reports, TSMC ups its Arizona chip-making investment to $40 billion ahead of Biden's visit. They're um, announcing Tuesday that it's building a second semiconductor factory in Arizona and raising, raising its investment there from $12 billion to $40 billion. And I was told that the people of Taiwan are not happy with this development. Your thoughts, Dr. Uh, Dr. Horn? Well, clearly, because what that means is that those uh, well-paying jobs, instead of being allocated to Taiwan, will be allocated to Arizona. The importance of what TM TSMC is doing in Arizona was validated when Mr. Biden flew out to Arizona for the uh, official opening or beginning of the opening of this plant, as well as Tim Cook the CEO of Apple, uh, which is heavily dependent upon TSMC for chips, and right now is in a kind of quandary because the hawks in Washington are now demanding that many of the corporations that are so heavily invested in China, such as Apple, for example, that they take a haircut, that they try to decouple uh, their production facilities uh, from the People's Republic of China. This has led to a mad scramble on the part of Apple is trying to compensate not only by opening facilities in Vietnam and opening facilities in India, but also this plant 
in Arizona, which is why Tim Cook showed up alongside uh, Mr. Biden. I would point your audience to the recent book, Chip Wars, by the Tufts University professor, QUFTS University professor, Chris Miller, which goes into some detail about how this battle over who controls chips is going to be one of the pivotal battles of the 21st century. I certainly think that um, the Europeans are going to be concerned because, let's face it, once the U.S., if the U.S. gets to corner the chip market, they will certainly use that to, uh, uh, that's another powerful force they have to twist the arms of European leaders. Uh, I think the European leaders are finding out that they're not members of NATO, that they're uh, prisoners of NATO. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. Uh, Dr. Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author. He's a historian. Thank you very much, Dr. Horn. Thank you for inviting me. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Saturday is Worldwide Human Rights Day, and rallies for Julian Assange will be held at a number of British embassies around the world. Also, we will discuss how Americans have been convinced to believe absurdities about Russia and Russiagate. Joining us to discuss these issues and more, we have Ray McGovern. Ray is a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, Garland. Well, you know, we always talk. There's a lot of negative things to talk about Ukraine and how the there seems to be, you know, possibly a, a uh, you know, a, a long road ahead of us. But, Ray, you have brought to my attention something that a lot of people have missed, and that is the potential for an exit ramp, possibly a way out. Let us know what happened and what you found, Ray. Well, yeah, uh, Garland, l- let me c- be clear. This is not a brainstorm by McGovern. Um, <laughs> This is a very, this is a very broad hint from a fellow named Vladimir Putin. Now, uh, back in the day, uh, when we were Russian or Soviet analysts, we had to read every speech. We had to watch it when they became on TV. We had to read the trans. All of it. well, I still do that. All right. And when uh, Putin made a major presentation at Valdai, the conference there. Uh, on the 27th of October, it was it was a very important statement. He only spoke for 45 minutes. <laughs> then he answered questions for three and a half more hours. Now, apparently, all the New York Times, Washington, all all the correspondents in Moscow went home to have a martinus or something like that. But uh, I, I stayed, so to speak, and watched the whole thing, and then I read the whole thing. I printed it out. It was 23 pages. Okay, no. Why do I say all that? Because you can get a lot of information if you stay in there, if you hang in there and read this stuff. Now, the, the penultimate question, okay, right before they finished was what I think to be a canned question. And it holds a ray of hope for an eventual negotiation. Get us out of this thing. At least it did on the 27th of October. It may not be so bright right now. A Hungarian journalist, he says, you know, uh, Mr. Putin, I, I really want to visit Odessa. Now, for your audience, Odessa 
the major Russian city in the heart of Ukraine. It's not been conquered by Russian army yet, uh, but it can easily be conquered and overrun and deprive Ukraine of any outlet toward the sea. It becomes a landlocked a landlocked feeding center for the west of Europe because the only thing we'll have is agriculture. So anyhow, this fellow says, now, uh, I'm going to visit Odessa. Uh, should I apply? Listen to this now. Should I apply for a Russian or a Ukrainian <laughs> visa? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cute, huh? Pretty cute. Well, uh, Putin rises to the occasion. Odessa, he says, can be a, a, a yabloka razdora. Okay, that's an apple of discord. The illusion, of course, is to Greek pathology. That's what launched the, the Trojan War, for God's <laughs> sake, you know, the apple of discord. It can be an apple of discord, or it can be, again, Putin's words, a symbol of conflict resolution and a symbol of finding some kind of solution to everything that is happening now. We have said many times, we, Russia, are, are ready to negotiate. But the leaders of the Kiev regime have decided not to continue negotiations. Now, it is true that the final word belongs to those who implement this policy in Washington. It is very easy for them to solve this problem, to send the appropriate signal to Kiev that they should change their position and seek a peaceful solution to these problems, and that would do it, period, end quote. Now, what could be a clearer hint? In other words, Odessa, it's not just just the words here, the rhetoric. Odessa was established by Catherine the Great. Mm -hmm. uh, her big statue remains in the main square there, and now it's been defaced since Putin said these words. So the question is, uh, Adyesa, will the Russian troops this winter, when the ground hardens and becomes ice um, frozen, uh, will they go and take Adyesa? If they do, that's the end of Ukraine as a viable state. What I see Putin doing here is holding out this kind of um, uh, this trial balloon and saying, look, uh, we don't want to get involved in taking over the whole Ukraine. We don't want to even involve get involved prohibiting Ukraine from having any outlet to the sea. All we want is the kind of security that we have been asking for for years. We want to stop at the Dnieper River, which is just, <laughs> well, Odessa sits at the bottom of it. And we'll stop there. Uh, we'll not conquer Odessa. You can make it like an international city like Trieste was after World War II. We'll have a DMZ, a demilitarized zone. And then we'll be satisfied. See what you can do. Now, this fell on deaf ears. I mean, I, I haven't seen anybody even mention this. Maybe nobody read it. Maybe they don't <laughs> stay around for three and a half hours, okay? But here is, here is Putin, what is it, six, seven weeks ago. And now, today, there's no, no flexibility in his tone here when he's talking to his comrades to the east. So I'm saying that there's a fleeting moment here that if Washington finally realizes Ukraine's not going to win no matter how many sophisticated arms the West provides, Russia has the upper hand here. Russia considers this to be an existential threat. It's not going to quit. The time to cut a deal is now. 
before Russia cuts Ukraine completely off from the sea. I think you're on to something. I think the Russians are poised to make a move, and I think they can make a move. They can make it obvious that they have the upper hand, and then they can pause, or they can simply say, if you would like to talk about Odessa, that's fine. If not, we'll continue on. And I, and, 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 and I also believe, you know, as was—let me ask you this. There's been st- statements made recently by Angela Merkel of saying, you know, we prefer some kind of a diplomatic resolution. Olaf Scholz, Macron said something about a diplomatic resolution and even mentioned Russia's security concerns, the things that they should have cons- thought about last year, this time when Russia specifically gave them a document asking for a, a, a diplomatic resolution. Do you think those statements, Schultz, Merkel, Macron, do you think they demonstrate that they're starting to be a bit a bit of a bend in the or or is that just hollow rhetoric right well i look more at hungary i look more at italy uh there are real cracks in the alliance now um you're europeans are really kind of curious people they they're against freezing to death during the winter can you imagine <laughs> they don't want to freeze to death nor do they want their economy to flounder with their factories moving where do you imagine to the united states German factories, German factories, they can't get enough natural gas to operate. So I think this winter we'll see something really major, and that will be whether the West Europeans and the East Europeans can finally stand on their own two feet 77 years after the end of World War II and speak up for themselves. If they can't do it when they're freezing to death, you know, what hope is there for these people? So I, I see, you know, Germany is already suffering some real trouble from the right as well as from the rest. Italy, the same way. Uh, they're not going to be able to survive unless they remove some of these sanctions. And the sooner the U.S. realizes that, the better. Because, you know, if the U.S. wants the, the NATO superstructure not to fracture inexorably, not to, not to go by the wayside, then they gotta they gotta make some some compromises, and this one that Putin is offering, you know what I see behind that is uh, Putin doesn't want to be sucked into a war like his Soviet predecessors were sucked into Afghanistan. Okay, now if Putin takes over most or even just half of Ukraine, then they're they're. There lingers the possibility of, you know, partisan warfare, insurgency. I mean, it'll be it will be endless. And so Putin will be satisfied if he destroys the Ukrainian army, which he has done about half the job right now. Uh, who is it? Doug McGregor tells me that they only have a, they have less than 200,000 troops and the Russians have mobilized 300,000 plus the ones already there. It's going to be a no-win situation for Ukraine. So will the U.S. allow Zelensky, now person of the year, mind you, <laughs> God, uh, will they allow him to do a deal? Well, if they don't, and if he realizes, or the Ukrainians realize finally, uh, that this is really a, a war against Russia and they're being used as, uh, as kind of stooges and as uh, you know, cannon fodder, which is the term that Putin used today, uh, then there's a chance that the Ukrainian military or some other people will come in and say, look, let's make a deal here. We had a deal going in early April that was put the kibosh on. Let's renew that. Let's see what the Russians will settle for. 
They're willing to deal. That's, you know, it's, it's an illusion to say the Russians are not willing to deal. And in my view, the reason they're willing to deal is they don't want to be saddled with taking over too much that they can chew in Ukraine. There's ample opportunity for partisan and other uh, subterranean warfare. They don't have to deal with that for the next couple of decades. So a deal can be made. Now's the time. And we have to think in these terms rather than, you know, um, defeating the Russian army or defeating the Ukrainians or defeating the Americans. It's not defeat or win. It's working out some sort of deal to end this terrible thing where thousands of Ukrainian citizens are being killed every week. Consortiumnews.com reports rallies for Julian Assange in front of British embassies and consulates from Rome to New York and other cities around the world will be held on Saturday, which is Human Rights Day. Your thoughts, Ray McGovern. Well, I'm glad to see you're one of the speakers, Garland. <laughs> <laughs> my, my thought is uh, extreme regret that I'm not in a position to be able to travel up there because I would love to join you all. Uh, this is what has to happen. You know, we have to get off our couches, we get off our patooties and put our bodies into this. Now, maybe, just maybe, the American people will be sensitized to some of this. Maybe the speeches and maybe the truth that will come out from you and from others uh, and from Roger Waters, the music and so forth. Uh, maybe that will make a dent in the public consciousness because Americans are just completely, completely brainwashed on the notion, uh, the supposition, that the Russians have some genetic defect that makes them evil, and that Putin is Hitler or the devil incarnate, and that the Russians are no better. Uh, they're a gas station posing as a country. I mean, for God's sake, our President Obama said that. You know, he, here's my image of that. You know, you, you have this gas station, right? You say, hey, hey, Putin, hey, uh, uh, Dostoevsky, what are you doing over there? He said, you keep writing things. Come on over and check these tires. Rachmaninoff, uh, <laughs> come on, Tolstoy, what are you doing there? Come on, we did the car. Pump that gas, Tolstoy, you know? I mean, give me a, give me a break. It's just, it's, it's reached ridiculous extremes. And the real problem is what Will Rogers called attention to many years ago. He said, you know, the problem is this. It's not what people know. It's what people know that ain't so. That's the problem. The Russians are not primarily responsible for this mess. It's NATO. It's the coup in Kiev in, in 2014. People don't even know about that. So to the degree that you up there in New York or Washington, others in Rome, wherever, can, can kind of get past the propaganda, make people realize that just as before Iraq, you're being had. You're being had on misinformation. You're being had by, by people who profiteer on war and need a credible enemy, Russia first and now China. It's time that that money goes to the people who need it, the people who need to build schools and need to eat, for God's sake, and a lot of people in dire circumstances in our very country right here in the U.S. Here's a very important story, I think, and that is Xi Jinping's visit to Saudi Arabia. But he also met with the Gulf Council cooperation. He met with the Arab League. He's there meeting with representatives of the Middle East, powerful representatives. Your thoughts on that, um, Ray? Well, it's symbolic, but symbols mean something. I mean, all Biden could insist on was a fist bump, right? 
<laughs> famous fist bump. And he didn't get uh, the the royal welcome that Xi Jinping got just now with all these Arabian horses prancing around and people. I mean, the Petraeus salad, salad of, of medals on these Saudi Arabian uh, uh, generals and so forth. If you watch it, really quite something. So what's happening? Well, the Saudis are saying, all right, it's over. Since the war, we've been loyal to you and because we had the oil. But we don't have to do that anymore. You guys have shown yourselves to be inept. We're going with the East just as Russia is going with the East, just as Iran is going with the East, just as everybody with any sense. And indeed, most people of color are going with the East. So as I've said before, well, Putin said today that he sees a, a multipolar world uh, evolving from this. Well, he's, that's true, but it's mostly, it's better looked at, in my view, as a bipolar world, which is the lily white West represented by NATO against the rest of the world, 90% of whom are people of color, China, India, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, and most of Latin America. Give me a break. Yeah, we've really isolated Russia, right? <laughs> By no means. We've only got about a minute and a half left, Ray, but your thoughts on the recent um, assertions about uh, the JFK assassination and the CIA's cover-up. We've got about a minute and a half. Well, what I hearken back to in recent years is uh, Donald Trump got up one morning and said, Congress... There's a law that says I have to release the rest of the JFK documents, and I'm going to do that this afternoon. Oh, this afternoon he gets up and he says, I'm not going to do that. And he says this, right? He says, the CIA and the FBI have told me that I can't do that. So we're going to we're going to push it off for six months. So McGovern makes a notebook, you know, ask six months later, nothing. Okay. So. What do they have to hide, for God's sake? They have a lot to hide. I'm convinced they were involved. And the best book on this is JFK and the Unspeakable by a fellow named Douglas, D-O-U-G-L-A-S-S, two S's at the end. Uh, he's that 14 years ago, it came out. It is the best wrap-up based on all the materials available up until that time. I suggest people read it. It comes to the conclusion that, yes, JFK was done in because it was reaching out to the to the hated commies. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. And because he was withdrawing troops from Vietnam, he had issued two executive orders that few people know about. They were going to take those troops out of Vietnam, out of that feckless thing. And the military and the CIA didn't want to give up Southeast Asia and Indonesia and all those dominoes to the commies. That's how bad it was. Does this sound familiar? My God, have we learned nothing since? Ray McGovern is a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Go to raymcgovern.com for all of his work. So you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. 
A U.K. city is defending a climate change lockdowns. Also, there are new claims of U.S. involvement in creating the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The FBI seems to have had a crooked hand in the Hunter Biden Twitter con- controversy and the use of armed police robots may be on the horizon. For more on these exciting stories, we turn to Steve Poikinen. He's a national organizer for Action for Assange, and he's a host of a Slow News Day and AM Wake Up on Rockfin. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much, Garland. And Ryan Christian, he's host of The Last American Vagabond, also on Rockfin. Ryan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. My pleasure to be here, Garland. Always happy to join you. Well, gentlemen, the three of us have all been called med um, conspiracy the- uh, theories for saying far less than this, but let's go to RK, R- RT. The city of Oxford has embraced the concept of limiting citizens' personal travel to fight climate change, an idea that was once dismissed as a conspiracy theory. The city will be divided into six 15-minute neighborhoods containing all local necessities with residents required to register their cars so their comings and goings can be tracked by a network of cameras. They are allowed unlimited movement in their own neighborhood, but in order to drive through the filters, they must apply for a permit. Even then, they're only granted access to other neighborhoods for an average of two days per week. Those who exceed their travel allotment will be fined. Let's start with you, Ryan. When those of us who questioned that lockdowns could lead to such an outcome as this, they told us we were mad. Some of us were even thrown off of platforms and the like. Your thoughts on this story, Ryan? This is a really concerning step that we've seen, like, as you pointed out, that's been building for a long time. This is by no means the first step in this direction, but it is really interesting to see it. Uh, what's the right term? Dovetail off the, off the end of this COVID-19 illusion where you're right. Many of us were saying, okay, well, this is just a, a policy that's being applied to COVID-19, but that's been clearly something they've been, they, you know, authority has been trying to accomplish for a long time, which, I mean, just take a look at the controlled state of, of occupied Palestine to really understand the kind of thing we're talking about here, whatever the logic behind it is, right? So per, we're, let's just pretend that they're, they genuinely believe this is about reducing carbon and climate change discussion, which that's, that's debatable at the very least of whether this is even going to achieve that. But what's interesting is it's, I personally feel it has nothing to do with this logic, even if some of the people arguing for it think that. To me, this is about controlling your, your movements, tracking your movements, surveillance. I mean, think about having daily checkpoints in your life, not the kind of checkpoints we're used to like at a toll booth, but like literally like military style or at least police style checkpoints. That's what this is. Enforcement checkpoints. And understand the only way to make this really work is for you to have a digital ID have some kind of ubiquitous app that you all apply to use, register your vehicle under. Therefore, you can be held accountable, probably a social credit score, probably something related to your carbon, you know, everything else we've been seeing build. But all that aside, this is concerning for me on a basic core value of freedom and free, and, and free movement, which is not just a U.S. thing. I mean, this is, those are international human rights, right? The right to free movement. So this is a very dangerous step. And last thing I'll say on this point is that even if they genuinely want to do good with this, let's say, Who's to say the next person who comes into power doesn't have more nefarious designs? And we always got to think like that. Yeah, you know, and I think the obvious part at the end is, and you'll be fined if you go. I mean, hey, I think I want to visit my friend in another city. Got to wait a couple days. I don't have enough credits. And then if I don't, I will be heavily fined. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen? Yeah, I the, this is in no way, shape, or form about limiting the scope of, of damage done to the climate. 
And first of all, if this was a serious conversation, we wouldn't be districting cities. We would be shutting down any number of the thousand military bases the U.S. has worldwide. We uh, we would be taking a look at, at how and where we actually produce our energy, and we would be giving you know uh, uh, ostensibly millions of dollars to the exact same people who caused the damage in the first place just because they're marketing green solutions uh, they, currently. Um, if you're still allowed to go anywhere you want to within the city, and the only difference is you can't cross over uh, an arbitrary border into another city, and that limits the amount of whatever that you're putting into the air. I don't, I don't see how that's even remotely possible. I, I, mean, I agree with Ryan 100% on here. This has zero to do with curbing climate change or just stopping emissions. Well, you know, guys, I just think about that COP27 recently thing they, they had in Egypt. And I saw this picture of all of the private planes they had, hundreds, if not thousands of planes with like a handful of people flying on these planes all coming in together. Then they get there and they've got motorcades, some up to 80 cars. So they burn as much fossil fuel as the average like city would in a year for a climate change hearing at that point point, I'm like, for some reason, I don't think these people are sincere. But here's another reason. U.S.-funded Chinese lab for, intel- uh, for intelligence operations, says a whistleblower, Americans te- America's technology transfer to China resulted in the COVID-19 pandemic, a former EcoHealth Alliance executive claims. And let me add something to that. And this is an, from the Euro Weekly. Um, and this was July 20, uh, to, uh, 2020, July 10, 2022. COVID originated in U.S. laboratory, not China, says American economist. Dr. Jeffrey Sachs said, quote, I am quite convinced that it came out of a laboratory in the United States. He led a, the Lancet, which is one of the most respected uh, medical journals in the world. They did an investigation into the, um, the origin of the virus. And one of the things that he found was the U.S. government wouldn't cooperate. And he said, I thought I couldn't believe they wouldn't cooperate, but they wouldn't cooperate. And they hid evidence from him and they lied to him. And in the end, it's kind of like the CIA, uh, the CIA JFK assassination. But now we have someone who actually worked for EcoHealth Alliance, I kind of think the uh, arrows are starting to point in the direction of uh, something really bad. We'll start with you, Ryan, Christian. Yeah, I think this is, this is <laughs> I, I think the reason that Sachs, as well as this recent whistleblower, are being, lar- I don't want to say largely ignored because it's hard not to see this conversation, but the partisan players from either side are, I, basically this comes down to the inclusion of the U.S. government involved with whatever we're pointing at. And that doesn't have to mean the Chinese government's not involved. I think that's actually quite impossible to think about. I think both of them clearly had a hand in whatever this was, whether that amounts to one final action by one or the other that kind of tipped us over the edge, however you look at it. But both the U.S. government and the Chinese government are acutely involved in everything happening there and other locations doing more of it. And now we have somebody coming from Equal Health Alliance is pointing out the exact same thing many of us were screaming about in 2020, right? And that we all got censored for and saying it's not just China, that this, in fact, I think is crux of his argument is it's actually, it involves China, but it's a, it's a, it was basically covered up by the U.S. government because it was a U.S. intelligence operation. Now, I don't know if that necessarily means to frame China for this or that the whole thing was an operation that was then 
everyone's trying to distance themselves from. Sachs doing the same thing, right? He's, I argue, being objective about it and saying, clearly, there is culpability for the U.S. in this, no matter what ultimately happened. And then you get the partisan players that don't like that flavor. And so they like to just make it bad guy China or the complete reverse where it's I, I, maybe only the U.S. I don't know. There's different takes on this. But for me, I'm still questioning from the core value, and this may not resonate with a lot of people, about whether this is even technically happening the way we think it is. I often, I often cite Denny Rancourt's research, and there's a lot of other great research out there, but he really nailed it when he broke down the simple mathematical understanding of this, that if they wanted to, not to say that it happened, should they have wanted to create an entire illusion this is not even getting into whether virus exists, just the idea of whether they could have made it look like this. They could have done that by conflating flu and pneumonia, by pointing at other illnesses that disappeared, by using then other things that happened, let's say potentially vaccine side effects and framing it otherwise, PCR false positives. My point is simply that we should still be questioning whether if even this whole conversation is meant to derail us from digging further. But that aside, I find this to be very relevant because I do believe the U.S. government's been involved with some pretty shady work going back as far as you want to look. That, that does overlap with China in a lot of different ways. But I, and then before I pass it to Steve, I want to kind of overlap this with the previous point. Now we're talking about pandemics or maybe even the illusion of them. How long until the next scare, whether real or not, fabricated or not, becomes the justification to go, well, we have these semi-city lockdowns in place for climate change. Let's use it now because of this next pandemic. And let's make that lockdown around your house or around your county. You know, however that works. It's just, a, it's a mission creep, as we all know, concept that applies to everything they do. So this is concerning for a lot of different reasons. Well, you know, Steve, it won't be monkeypox because they changed the name. I think, the you know, the first name didn't work well enough, so they came up with a new name for monkeypox. But here's the thing about it that 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 is interesting. As I started looking into lab leak stuff, I found that there are actually a number of recorded lab leaks where people actually died. When people first started about a, the potential for a lab leak, they said, that's insanity. That's madness. What are you talking about? A lab leak couldn't possibly be, you must be deplatformed. And when you start looking into it, you find there are recorded instances where the U.S. government and other governments have been working on viruses or different things. These things escaped from the labs and people died. So it's not crazy for people to think this was a lab leak. And now there's evidence coming out where it appears that there are those who are in the midst of it who suspect or argue that it was, in fact, um, something down that something created by the U.S. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen. OK, so so we we've ascertained that um, that it, it's no longer crazy to call it a lab leak, no longer crazy to uh, to even have the conversation as to whether or not um, the the whole origin story is nonsense. But the one thing we do know for certain that that is totally crazy is that the U.S. government would have any part to play in the wrongdoing surrounding any virus or, or any sort of bioweapon in the history of ever always because, you know, good guys. Um, the the I, I feel like because of the way that the independent media has been able to kind of you know, shout this down in real time the whole time, uh, regardless of whatever censorship we've been faced with, um, that uh, a lot of the, the people that were involved in, let, let's take it at the word and call it a, a, an intelligence operation, just in terms of the scope of the article, people that were involved in that 
have to release this information in some way, shape, or form. And you would assume that it would be to steer the narrative or steer the conversation, but even to get to that point suggests such a, a loss of control of the situation that I feel like we all kind of have to internalize it as at least a little win going forward. I feel good about it. Yeah, it's a discussion we need to continue to have. And anyone, I would say this, anyone go out there online and just start searching for lab leaks, for the history of lab leaks. Just start searching online and you will find, don't use Google. You don't ever use Google. But because you will find out there absolute unquestioned evidence of lab leaks and death from lab leaks, of lab leaks in animals that have been affected, lab leaks for smallpox, lab leaks for foot and mouth, lab leaks that are recorded and that have. So if, in fact, there are lab government lab leaks that have been recorded that are not being denied, it's not mad to at least ask those questions. All right. Now, here's something I find interesting. Fox News, stay tuned. House GOP hints at potential legal action against ex-Twitter lawyer who suppressed the Hunter Biden story. Here's the one thing I think about that. There's a part of this to me that is the smokingest of smoking guns. Gentlemen, I'll ask you about it. That doesn't get discussed. In the Hunter Biden story, we find that in December of 2019, the FBI apparently was called by some guy in Delaware, and the guy said, I got Hunter Biden's laptop. Come get it. They go to this guy and they get it. Of course, he can legally, it's his. He keeps a copy of the hard drive. They keep it for roughly a year. During that time, they, re, you know, undoubtedly they look at it and realize, okay, this is Hunter Biden's. The, the guy that they interviewed said, I got it from Hunter Biden. They didn't have to search to find out if it was authentic. However, we also find out that that the FBI is meeting weekly with all of the social media companies and they're telling the social media companies a deliberate lie. They say to them, guys, we and girls, whatever, we think that the Russians may have hacked some information regarding Hunter Biden and they may be dumping it just before the election. So you might want to change your terms of service to make it easier to censor that information. They told them the opposite of the truth. What the FBI did was a deliberate misinformation operation against the American people with malice and a forethought. There was clear mens rea, meaning criminal intent. Start with you, Ryan Christian. Yeah, th this is an, uh, this is a really interesting and important story that I argue to a degree is almost being hidden by the Twitter files and the way it's coming out. But because this is something that is undeniable. The way you just laid it out there, I don't know how anybody, everything you said there is easily proven and backed up. The information that they that they held this this entire time literally seeded the very excuse that was then used by social media to unjustly censor what they knew was true. I mean, you just can't miss how obvious that is. And and it also shows you how willing these people are to because remember from there, the media then and all those people signed the affidavit and saying, you know, these faceless intelligence people, the 50 people that said it looks like a Russian hack, all the earmarks of a Russian hack. And then Biden on stage said they told us it's a Russian hack, which then got reported as we know it's a Russian hack. I mean, how we can't see the decrepit dumpster fire that is corporate media today and how they just, you know, sycophant style share what they're told to share. This story got buried a long time ago, and it's undeniably true. The fact that it's there and that there is damning stuff on that. So for it to take this long and for it to be dripped out and debated 
even by people on the right, by the way, and there were a lot of them saying that this is true and it should be looked at, I think this, it, it really does, it's larger than just left versus right. And I hope we can all see that because this gets played a lot of different ways with a lot of different topics. Right now, this does seem to aim a certain direction. But if you dig into what's in there and find the Ukraine stuff or the China stuff, it relates to more than just one side of this paradigm. And I think that's the biggest issue. That's why I tend to think that this won't ever truly come to light. I And I, this isn't popular, especially when people want a win, whether left or right. I don't think what's happening on Twitter is is honest, at least so far. I feel like it's a, like people are being trained to kind of like regard the new information through an intermediary. And instead of we demanding source material and actual transparency, we pretend we just got it with a bunch of text and screenshots. And it's really frustrating. People are comparing this to WikiLeaks. I mean, it actually insults me that that's even on the table. But here we are. And I think that we're watching a massive psyop that's kind of stopping this very important story. And that's and see, what's funny is people pretend by pointing out the Twitter point that that means you're undermining this very story. I actually think it's the other way around. I think the whole Twitter files is stopping what's in here from really coming to light. Now, I could be proven wrong tomorrow if and when that comes out. But so far, I'm not feeling positive about it. Steve, let me give you an example. You know, I came from law enforcement. This is what I always think of. It's the oldest trick in a book. You commit a murder, right? You strangle this person to death. Then you leave him in a house and set the house on fire. Why? The fire is an arson, but the arson was committed to cover up a murder. You want them investigating the arson. You don't want them investigating. Well, this person just appeared to die in a fire. No, they were strangled. You did an arson to convince, uh, uh, right? And then you say, I accidentally lit the house on fire. Here's my point. This story, we're looking at this. Oh, my, there were Twitter lawyers. There was people were doing shadow ban. Oh, these terrible things with Twitter were doing. Uh-uh, uh-uh, that ain't the story. The story is the FBI had the laptop and deliberately lied to the social media companies and said, we think it's a Russian hack. But they knew it wasn't because they had, we think it may be a hack and dump, but they knew it wasn't. We think you need to train, change your uh, 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 terms of service to make it easier for censor. It was a lie. Where is Congress saying F the FBI is caught? This is, th this ain't a smoking gun. This is a videotape of the murder. It, nothing could be clearer. You hear nothing from Congress. I think if we're looking at Twitter, we ain't looking at the FBI, and that's the game. I'm with Ryan. Your thoughts, Steve? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And like, if Congress uh, was any kind of concern uh, about what the FBI was doing outside of how each particular, you know, uh, the, the side of the, the duopoly there could weaponize it against their political opponent, they would have done something about it 50 years ago. They would have done something about it 100 years ago. The, the FBI has only been used as a tool of political persecution, and it only will be used that way. So the idea that it's, it's even existing outside of the scope of a weaponized arm of whichever, you know, petty middle manager of the state is in a selected office at the time, very, very, very silly. Um, with the, in terms of the FBI possessing a laptop and running an absolute disinformation campaign on social media companies, on users, on other media outlets, for that matter, who mm -hmm. all had to pick this up and report it uncritically. Uh, you would hope that, that enough people who are uh, even halfway paying attention to this or halfway paying attention to the way that media has worked over the last several years will take a little bit of pause, um, like Ryan's suggesting, like we've suggested, and say, look, the screenshots aren't source material. 
All you have to do is open up a GitHub link or what, and just drop files there. We've got people lined up to go through it and verify it. And that's how you do journalism. You don't just, you know, if I show you a picture on my phone and say it happened, that that's not proof. It's just not proof, and it's not going to hold up. I really hope this breaks uh, our direction. Well, you know, I read this. House GOP leaders hinted Wednesday they may pursue legal action related to former Twitter and FBI lawyer James Baker. This reminds me of the, of the, of the Durham investigation fraud, where you go after individuals. And then if you look at what Durham did, he would go after an individual at the bottom. And then he'd make a charge so light and then he'd bring it in D.C. where he knew he was going to get a, an acquittal. And if he didn't get an acquittal, like in Kevin Kleinsmith, they gave the guy the guy was convicted of lying in an FBI investigation. They didn't charge him with lying to the FISA court. And then what did he get? A year probation. That's what you get for stealing a candy bar out of 7-Eleven. So just like the Durham investigation, I think, was designed to take us away from the actual crimes, I think even what the GOP leaders are saying is, we're going to go after this guy. But the guy was the former FBI general counsel, and he comes to be the Twitter's general counsel. And the FBI was involved in this. So we're going after people, but don't touch the FBI. Whatever you do, do not go after the FBI. Steve, I, it just, I, I, mean, go ahead. I was going to go to you. Ryan, your thoughts on this. Okay, good. I, I, I know we have a couple of the topics. Sure, right time. I just want to make a point about, about Baker in general. I find it very fascinating, exactly what you're saying about how this is essentially, and thus far, like, I'm trying to make sure people hear that we're trying to be objective. We're just engaging thus far. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? But at, as we're standing, this seems to be hung around him. And what I find most telling is, I mean, first of all, it's possible, I guess, that Elon and people there didn't weren't aware that this exact person was in their own company. But remember, I, there's examples of, for instance, Mike uh, uh, Cernovich calling this person out on Twitter to Elon and Elon re regarding it and saying things, oh, that does look bad. So, and it's possible he forgot, but it's there, it's on the radar. And so for this later to come out as if this is, I mean, the, the comment was even that Barry's jaw dropped to the floor because he was there and involved. It's like, he's part of the council. Like, wouldn't it be, it makes common sense the lawyers would be involved in this process. But I don't know, it feels, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. And to your point, to put on top of it, then they seem to only go after this one person as opposed to where the real story is that this is a full-on government agenda. And maybe it's only one-sided, but to make it just about Baker, someone who was already involved. And look, I don't trust any of these people, let alone Baker, but this, this feels like a straw man, a scapegoat, personally. Oh, absolutely. And the straw man, um, they generally even, I mean, the straw man can play along because afterwards he gets a slap on the hand and he goes and he finds a golden parachute and, you know, eventually uh, he gets, uh, you know, something easy. All right, Caitlin Johnstone. This is an interesting normalizing police robot murder. It makes sense that the U.S., where the police force is more heavily funded than almost any other nation's entire military, is leading this charge. Governments have been incrementally pre pre prepping the public toward accepting the use of robots that kill people. San Francisco, I know both of you guys reported on this. A robot rolling around with a gun. What could possibly go wrong there? Steve Poikinen. Well, you know, fortunately, uh, the, the robots have not been armed with guns, merely bombs. So uh, <laughs> we've got, you know, we've got that going for us. We can either have grenade-throwing robots or kamikaze robots, suicide robots. The Jihadi Bot 3000, the, they'll send in. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the city of San Francisco pulled back on this a little bit. They were like, okay, okay, look, we, 
we have them, but we're not going to use them yet now that you guys made a bunch of stink about it. Um, but as soon as we can get you distracted, we're rolling them back out again. And this is more and more and more about, as you were saying, getting people comfortable with the idea and used to the idea that machines are going to do the thinking, machines are going to do the decision-making, machines are going to be the arbiters of who gets to live and who gets to die because, you know, uh, ostensibly, they're not going to act irrationally. Although I'm pretty sure you could train a police robot to be in constant fear for its life. They backed off a little bit, but it, all of this is just waiting to for the next, you know, next uh, emergency so you can pull the trigger on it. You know, Ryan, here's the thing, and and she and 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 um, Caitlin brings this out. It is interesting. They called it a robot dog. You know, we have dogs. We like dogs. Dogs are nice. They love us. We come home and they bark and they wag their tails and they wiggle and things like this. This ain't a robot dog. This is an armed robot. They're calling it a police dog. That's kind of to me a psyop on people to make people think of to make their brain connect with something that they like. No, they the New York City police, and of course. They had one patrolling. They started with what? A housing project. So that, as always, they can start by sicking the robots on the poor people. And then once everybody else gets accustomed to that, then they kind of, you know, wiggle them out everywhere else. Your thoughts, Ryan? I, as, as always, Garland, you're, you're seeing through the BS. I, I Exactly. I thought the same thing that it, even going back to like the Boston Dynamics videos, I mean, they have the, 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 the humanoid looking ones as well. But I had the similar thought as well that they're trying to start with something that we regard as more, you know, man's best friend kind of idea. Where you, and, and so it's it's the step in the door. Because if you marched out a bunch of robots, people looking robots, I mean, people are inherently concerned about that. Like I, I've even seen studies about the more humanoid you make them look, the more uncomfortable it is for people, like on a general sense. There's just something that doesn't connect with us when we see this. But I think you're dead on. But my, on, on top of that, this whole idea I mean, talk about a, a leap in the, in, the, in the direction they're going. And when I first came out, that's exactly the argument I made. The day this was announced, I said, here's what I predict. This is going to be pushed out with no intention of rolling this out. This is the first step of going way over the top. We're going to put out killer robots. I mean, even the way that they framed it. So then we go, that's crazy. And they go, oh, you're right. And then as Steve points out, they'll wait for something, usually some event or some crime spree or something goes up in numbers and they roll out something that's less, not a killer robot, but something, you know, a, a robot protector that serves, protects and serves, you know, whatever their narrative becomes, it's the same exact thing, but framed differently. So it's, it's the way these things always roll out is they test the waters, they, they gauge our reaction. And usually and sometimes they roll them out intentionally crazy. So we accept the lesser version, which was always what they wanted to roll out in the first place. Now, some people may regard that as conspiracy theory, but it seems today people are realizing more and more that's just critical thinking. But the big thing for me is, is the idea that right when this came out, I, I mean, this is like idiocracy level. <laughs> I, I think it was either a day later or like the same day, MIT put out an article saying, we just created robots that can literally re literally reproduce. And it's not a joke. Yep. It's not, that's not hype. That's something that they're working on. And I, I put it next to each other and I said, come on, guys, we can't be this stupid. Making murder robots and ones that can reproduce. It's like, welcome Skynet. We're here already. You know, that's how <laughs> jokingly it feels. But I see this as a, as we're, a precursor we're very, to a very close direction. To being able to tell people to Google 40% of robot cops. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what is interesting, and um, that is, and and Caitlin, Caitlin goes there. Look, when a bunch of people surround the, you know, a bunch of protesters surround and say we're not going to leave, and you say to the cops, shoot them. The cops may say we're not shooting on the, those people. Those are our families and our friends. You're not going to get that kind of pushback from a robot, Steve. <laughs> Your thoughts? About a minute and a half. No, no, you're not. And I, I, this is, uh, we'll see the introduction of the non-lethal bot with the concussion grenades or whatever, or you'll have a, a robot with, uh, with rubber bullets that fires for crowd dispersal. Um, the, again, this is all about taking, taking decision-making power out of actual human beings and putting it into the hands of not necessarily machines, but a handful of technocrats who are responsible for writing the programs that determine how the machines behave. Uh, If we're at all interested in preserving our humanity, then we should probably uh, push past some of the the red team, blue team distraction stuff and take a look at what's happening uh, in this sector. All right. Well, we have been talking to Steve Porkin, and he's a national organizer for Action for Assange. And everybody, this weekend, get out all over the place. Go online. You can find it. There's going to be um, rallies for Julian Assange on Human Rights Day, um, Washington, D.C., Rome. I'll be in New York City all over the place. Support Julian Assange. Don't forget about that. And, of course, the last American vagabond, the one and only Ryan Christian. Check out the last American va- vagabond on Rockfit. You have a website, don't you? You, Ryan? The last American vagabond.com. Thank you, Garland. It's always a pleasure. Well, I can't figure out why that was so complicated for me to come up with. All right, Steve, <laughs> Ryan, thanks a lot. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The Black Alliance for Peace is holding an anti-imperialist week of action. Also, we discuss the coup in Peru, the sentencing of the Argentine vice president, and the crisis of Western imperialists. And we end with a discussion about Haiti. Joining us for these important stories, we have Ajamu Baraka. He's the 2016 U.S. vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. And Netfa Freeman, host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. He's also a pan-Africanist and international uh, organizer. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, you, everyone, you can go to black the uh, excuse me. You can go to blackallianceforpeace.com for more information. But the Black Alliance for Peace, one of my favorite organizations, is having Africa Anti-Imperialist Week of Action. So let's start with you. Your comments, Netfa. Okay. Yeah. So the, a lot of people may or may not know, I guess, that the U.S. Uh, is holding the United States government is holding um, the Africa and Africa. I'm sorry, the U.S. Africa uh, leaders, U.S. Africa leaders summit. I like to call it the U.S. Africa Comprador summit. And so they're <laughs> going to convene, be convening a whole a lot of the heads of state of African uh, governments, and then pulling together all these things are really big summits that uh, attract all kind of NGOs and and people that are. Um, that are you know, have uh, aligned with or, or want to see influence the interests of of uh, U.S. Africa affairs. 
So, but what we should understand is that these things are really an attempt to advance U.S. hegemony. In this case, in Africa, of course, U.S. hegemony wants to dominate the world, but in this case, it's Africa. And in the face of their waning influence around China, what they see as expressions of of uh, favoring Russia on the continent of Africa. That's what this is all designed about, designed for. Although it will be coming with the very glossy, very uh, I guess glossy. Uh, trappings of, oh, they're concerned with climate change, they're concerned with economic stability and good governance and those type of things. We have to see through that and actually look at the role that the United States has played in Africa uh, throughout ever since the independence movements, which has been to uh, undermine African independence and self-determination. And even to this day, they're responsible for some of the most horrendous uh, acts that are taking place on the continent of Africa, so they can't turn around. They shouldn't be able to turn around and posit themselves or position themselves to be the conveners uh, for the for the process that would uh, bring Africa uh, into stability. So we're having a number of uh, actions uh, that, that are that are going to take place at the same time as the summit. And the first the first day we will be having a we'll be doing a rally and uh, outside the gala dinner for this thing that's on the <laughs> December 12th and then the uh, 6 p.m. and then on the third the third that's the gala dinner and then on the December 13th we will be holding that's the opening of the summit we'll be holding our own forum at 12 noon at the Institute for Policy Studies it's called we're calling it the Africa Anti-Imperialist Summit Voices from the Ground where we will be featuring people on the continent of Africa uh, virtually who'll be able to give us their perspective on things and then on the 14th, we'll be have we'll ha- have a picket and rally again at, outside of the convention center. Uh, uh, that is where the main summit activities will be holding. That's going to start at noon. And then on the 15th, we'll do another one outside of the Microsoft Innovation and Policy Center, which is another aspect that, that where they're going to be holding another uh, another forum that's this positing itself in the best interest of Africa. Lastly, on the 16th, uh, where the Black Alliance for Peace um, Coordinating Committee will be in Washington, D.C. at that time, we're going to hold a press conference, a public press conference also at the Institute for Policy Studies uh, at 2 p.m., giving our basically our summation of what is, uh, what is you know, uh, uh, conclusions of what's taking place. And uh, all, everyone can get this information on the website, our website, blackallianceforpeace.com. And it should be there at the top of actually, if you go directly at blackalliancerpeace.com slash events, and it'll be the first, actually be the last event there because a number of things are taking place in between now and then that we're doing. Uh, but that's, that's my quick take on it. And I don't know if you Sure. Um, uh, uh, Ajamo, here's my thought, too, on this summit. The idea that the U.S. is going to have a summit in the best interest of Africa, it would be kind of like a slave plantation and the slave owners that beats and rapes and profits off of the, the pain of the, and the death of the slaves says, we're going to have a summit and bring people together to see how we can make the lives of slaves better and how we can act in the best interest of slaves. You'd have to be crazy to believe that the slave owner was doing that. And that's how I feel about this summit. Your thoughts, Ajamu? Well, look, it, it's, it is quite um, amazing that um, the very fact that you have this U.S.-Africa uh, summit that takes place in the U.S. is really all you need to know in terms <laughs> of the relationship, that it is, in fact, the plantation owners, the, the big capitalists that are uh, summering these people, calling these people to D.C. 
in order to talk about not African interests, but to talk about U.S. interests and how uh, uh, Africans uh, play into that or can support or will support uh, U.S. interests. So it is really um, important that the Black Alliance of Peace, uh, along with some other organizations, are calling uh, attention to this. We remember the last summit that took place between the U.S. and nation states in in Latin America was very important. Uh, and very important that there were the counter summit activities that were organized by uh, by the people. Uh, so this is a, another attempt to, in fact, do that, to make people aware of, of the fact that uh, this is a, a dangerous game being played. It gives the impression of, of some kind of progress. But basically, it is the strengthening of the U.S. ability to be able to impose its interests, its will on the African continent, working through many of these uh, as as uh, Netford re- referred to them, Comprador leaders, or another crude way of saying, looking at this is uh, Uncle Tom leaders, in order to uh, to expand U.S. influence and to in, 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 to ensure that the uh, extraction of of value from the African continent uh, continues. <laughs> June 6, 2021 was the day which shocked many in Peru's oligarchy. Pedro Castillo Terrones, a rural school teacher who had never been before elected to office, won the second round of the presidential election with just over 50 percent. From that day on, the Peruvian oligarchy declared war on Castillo. Um, and uh, the coup against Pedro Castillo was led by an odious right wing that refused to accept the people's aspiration for a progressive project. Your thoughts, Anefa? Oh, you know, I, I really I, I haven't haven't paid enough attention to this particular issue, so I might want to defer. But I mean, the the, the little bit that I know it seems is reminiscent of what's under different con- conditions of the attempts to overthrow Evo Morales, and and, the, and actually to me, I guess the only thing I, it, it underscores the importance of. Um, power and being able to have power and control over the, in terms of us being left forces under the different levers of the government. But I, I don't, you know, I don't know enough really to, be, I haven't been able to keep up to um, to talk more about it. And Ajamu, when we look at what they call the pink tide, um, but it, what is really, let's face it, whether it was the original Bolivarian revolution, there is the Sandinista, Z- Zap, Z- uh, what is it, Zapata revolution. Um, this what they're calling a pink tide now is a continuation of a struggle for independence and liberation that's been going on in the Latin America and in Africa for centuries. This is just another example of when the people push through and they get one of the people they want in. He, we, As we can see, Pedro uh, uh, Castillo has struggled to get anything through or to be able to do, do anything. And it seems to me that they finally got what they wanted. It would not shock me if they were not Western powers behind this Ajamu. Well, you know, it's a very complex situation that was happening in Latin America. It is, it is part of the continuation of the struggles of the people of our region uh, to free uh, it, uh, ourselves from the, the influence and the control of these various settler states, the biggest one, of course, being the U.S. settler state, uh, and the colonial relationship that continues between the U.S. and European powers and these various nation states in our region. And so one of the attempts, one of the ways in which the people have been attempting to try to alter the relationship has been by using um, various uh, channels open to them, including the electoral process, 
And through the electoral um, uh, um, activism, they've been able to seize a, a nominal state power in a few places, including uh, right now Colombia. Uh, but they've also been able to, um, to seize significant areas of state power, like in Venezuela uh, and in uh, Nicaragua, where they then uh, attempt to try to uh, transform these relationships between themselves uh, and, and Western imperialism. And so when you have this kind of, of push, of course, you have the, the counter to that. And that's the reactionary activity we see coming from the U.S., um, and, and, but what that means is that when you involve yourself in these electoral processes, understanding that even though you have some degree of progress where you are able to win nominal state power, you have to keep your base uh, in, in, in engaged. You have to have an independent social base, as a matter of fact. What we saw in Peru is that that didn't really happen, that as a consequence of some decisions that were made by uh, by the new president, um, he ended up alienating uh, uh, significant uh, uh, elements of his base. Um, and the, uh, the, the bourgeoisie, both uh, Peruvian and the U.S., they smelled blood and they moved. Uh, but, you know, it'd be, I think, a mistake to suggest it was only just the outside forces. It was, in fact, those inside Comprador forces, along with other elements that uh, helped to explain the, the the constitutional coup, if you will, uh, that uh, took place and resulted in uh, this progressive space being lost, at least for now. Um, and that for when I look at, you know, what happened with Evo Morales while and when I look at what happened with Lula, um, it makes me think of what Ajama was just was just saying in that, you know, there are multiple instances that we're seeing now where the people had a social movement that was able to be effective politically that either the U.S. empire or its, you know, forces of, of, of the wealth and oligarchy within a particular country was able to maybe do a coup, maybe do an overthrow, but that the people didn't give up and the social movements that were there didn't give up. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a that's a very important point that you make in terms of the 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 uh, insistence of the people or the fortitude or you want know, the vigilance of the people is that one oppressed you know oppression breeds resistance and that the people's resistance will be there you know, even when they don't when they're up against you know tanks and all and and arms and all kinds of stuff. yeah because you even see uh, this demonstrated in we could say for Palestine for example I mean to go to another place in the world where and. And even in the other place where even young children will be standing up to tanks and everything with nothing but stones and rocks. And so they can't, you know, this is, and it also underscores, I think, um, what I would call the inherently reactionary nature of um, the global elites, that they are so, that they, they that their interest is so committed to, un, to maintaining the neoliberal, the, the order of the world that that keeps them in power, keeps them, you know, their racist neoliberal order that keeps them in power, keeps them accumulating wealth and, and being parasites off of the, the global working class that, um, that they can't even see the unsustainability uh, and the futility of what they're doing. And so we actually, um, and but it also means that as oppressed people, it's incumbent among us to really figure out, you know, in a, a very strategic way, how do we get a better world? Because the, the enemy's not, they can't be convinced, you know, to just 
do you know participate uh, to engage in cooperation versus competition or or you know uh, collectivism versus individualism they can't be convinced to do that and so but uh, so we have to figure out how do we you know but they are also the minority they're always the minority because we're talking about concentrations of wealth and power and so how do we uh, forge something but through the masses of the people and particularly the working class and particularly non-white working class of the world that realizes our interest and can overcome the the material strength uh, advantage that the ruling elite have. You know, I believe it was the Shanghai Warrior training where they said their motto was to get knocked down seven times, get up eight. <laughs> I like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's only it's only it's either us have some sort of global, you know, uh, at, you know, dealing with capitalism, imperialism, or the world perishes. There's really no alternative. Uh, and uh, Haiti Liberté, how the NED sabotaged Haitian democracy and sovereignty. The National Endowment for Democracy is the soft power arm of the CIA. It contributes to past regime change in Haiti and to that which is underway today. Um, your thoughts, Ajamu? Well, you know, what they're doing in Haiti is what the um, National Endowment for Democracy was, was uh, created for. It was, as the first, uh, one of the first directors indicated, it was bringing to the surface or bringing to the light of day the kind of subversive activities uh, that the CIA used to engage in uh, underground, uh, in the dark. Uh, so using this, this concept of, of, of democracy promotion, uh, they have uh, been able to use U.S. state resources uh, to fund, uh, to train and to fund uh, opposition uh, parties in those national territories where they uh, wanted to be able to use that influence to ensure that uh, that there were favorable political forces there in those countries uh, that would undermine any attempt on the part of any government that was trying to bring about any kind of radical change um, and to eventually engaged in activities that sometimes were, were uh, extrajudicial. That is, they were engaged in illegal coups, uh, using and working through these these non-government organizations that they funded uh, in these various countries. And of course, some of the most more obvious ones that people are aware of is what happened in 2014, for example, in, in Ukraine. So this is what they do. Uh, they're doing in Haiti. They did it uh, to undermine uh, President Aristide and the movement, the popular movement there. You want you will wonder why is it that you need democracy training when you have uh, a movement that's reflected of, reflective of the people that's getting something like 92 percent of, of the people's uh, support. But that's what uh, reactionary uh, politics look like. That is the role of, of the uh, NED. Uh, and that is uh, the imperialist project we have in Haiti. Um, uh, John Paul, uh, John Bertrand Aristide won an overwhelming 92 percent of the vote in the 2000 presidential elections. His party, Lavalos, also won 80 percent of the seats in the Chamber of Deputies. The NED funded civil society groups to undermine President John Bertrand Aristide in the years leading up to the 2000 coup that removed him and hundreds of others from office electives. Your thoughts, Netfa? I, yeah, I mean, this, these are the tactics and the machinations they have that they only, the only difference that they, that they employ and what they try to do when they do it, they, they actually sort of, uh, what you call, appropriate 
appropriate the language of social justice, uh, you know, appropriate the tactics uh, of movement building and whatnot, and then also add a little of their own that are very unscrupulous ways. And the way they uh, manifest themselves, like, for you know, when it comes to something like in, in Haiti that you just, the example you just read, we were talking about a, um, a very new, under un, undeveloped, un, you know, in terms of movement that's not really prepared to deal with these, mech, these mech, machinations, if you, if you will. And like a Jamu said, this is what the NAD was formed for. It does what they what, the, what they say that that this uh, this National Endowment for Democracy and and also the USHC for International Development and these others Institute for the Repub the International Republican Institute different ones they do now overtly what the CIA used to do covertly is what the saying is but in reality the CIA still exists and they all work uh, with each other and so and and how they operate, for example, if we to take Cuba, for example, who's the, who has a revolution that goes all the way back to 1959 or 1960, they've been able to adopt and, and, uh, and develop and fortify a very people-centered, uh, you know, uh, uh, structure of government and um, people's organizations and all of that stuff. So when they operate there, and this is what they've tried to do, they've probably, you know, done the most there, is they, they run into a different thing. You know, they run and they actually have to employ different tactics when they're in countries that they like, you know, the government or whatever. Then they do other stuff. You know, they want the government to stay in power. Um, then they do other things. But this is this is what they do. And it's all about, you know, the, uh, the, the what we call soft power and the hidden hand. Um, and they are afraid of anything that would amass uh, popular um, people's support. I mean, what's interesting is that the very governments that they attack and what they're afraid of, even when the ones that have not been able to realize uh, the things they're um, that they. You know, like, uh, you know, the National Assemblies and the representation, people's representation that they realize those governments that they attack have much more sophisticated forms of democracy than people are willing to either they don't know about it or willing to admit. And I just say, for example, we, you know, I, we might have mentioned this the other day. So, for example, here in the U.S., they've had this uh, railroad strike. You know, there are people, on, you know, fighting for the railroad workers fighting for uh, their rights. And one of them was, was just sick leave, the paid, uh, not sick leave, uh, paid leave. But anyway, in uh, these are contradictions in terms of when it gets to this level and then the federal government participating in a way to break the strike, to break the legality of the strike in these other countries that they try to overthrow. And they don't want people to know this. Workers are represented in their legislative bodies. So it's not just about geographical areas and, you know, these representatives in like in the U.S. that really only represent a class interest. Women are represented. I mean, they actually have formations that have seats and the National Assemblies and things like that. So it's a whole different uh, state of affairs that they that the National Endowment for Democracy, for example, is try is designed to try to subvert and and make and obscure and make people not know uh, and dissuade people. You try to dissuade that that direction in the world. The crisis of Western imperialism and the imperative of war and repression. The world as we know it must change. Humanity cannot survive under imperialist and capitalist structures. This is a presentation at the World Anti-Imperialist Conference, and we have with us now the presenter, Ajamu Baraka. Your thoughts? Yes, that's that's really the where we're at. I mean, the 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 topics that we have been talking about thus far are representative of that of that logic that uh, imperialism is in fact uh, pursuing. 
They recognize that, that the soft power that their brother Neffa referred to, they used to provide uh, political and, and ideological glue for support for, for imperialism uh, is, is no longer um, uh, working. Uh, and therefore, they are more and more dependent on just naked force and, and violence. And we have to understand that this is not just the, re, the result of some uh, bad people in office, you know, uh, that, that we, we need to move or change with better people. No, it's an internal logic, an objective logic, if you will, uh, because these folks are serious about trying to maintain their hegemony. And if they have to use uh, force and violence, which is obvious that they're using that, that's in fact what they are doing. Look, you know, the thing we have to keep in mind and in, in what I talked about in that presentation at this gathering of, of revolutionary forces from around the world in Vietnam uh, is, is the, the multidimensional character of this, of this fight. But what I centered was the, the ideological component of this fight. This is the, 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 the whole concept of, of hybrid war uh, that, that we see unfold, uh, unfolding every day. I mean, even in the U.S., this whole idea of what's been revealed, for example, in the Twitter files, uh, that shows the, the, the collusion between the state um, and big tech uh, in order to, to push a certain kind of ideological framework, uh, a, a, a conformist uh, ideological uh, position. So this is what we're up against. It is an objective uh, monster that is uh, uh, dependent on, on, on force at this point to maintain its, its dominance. And it suggests that uh, our tasks have to be quite obvious to us, and that is to resist it and to understand the multidimensional uh, uh, character of our resistance also. You know, um, Netfund, when we talk about the crisis of, 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 uh, of imperialism, and we can see that in the desperation that's going on with this kind of Ukraine thing where the U.S. is, you know, they thought they would have all this support and all of these countries that the U.S. and the other colonial powers have been oppressing are not siding with the U.S. empire, and they're shocked. And I look at it like— I'm shocked that they're shocked. How could they think people that they've been robbing and murdering and genociding for years would somehow get on their side in a war? At any rate, your thoughts on the crisis of Western imperialism, Netfa? Yeah, it is interesting. I guess, I mean, if we think about this, what, the, who, the, what these formations are, they are the, um, what you call the, the, the inheritance, the inheritors of the colonial the Western colonialism and, and slavery. And so if we think about some of the dispositions and attitudes and mentality, the arrogance, you know, they're blinded by the arrogance, you know, of their own, and they believe in themselves. So uh, they, they really can't um, comprehend the the types of, you know, um, the, the ideology, the, the, the natural quest and, and human uh, quest for freedom and liberation and true self-determination, the collectivity, the collective, you know, the amassing of a sort of a collective interest uh, that the oppressed people have is something that's beyond their ability to comprehend and that they, and their dominance over this such a long point for them has only has, instead of being a real, realistic look at the world, has only proven to them, confirmed for them that they need, that they're supposed to be on top. I mean, as part of, they've ingrained into their philosophy of thinking uh, that this is how it is. So when people, when the, you, know, you can even see like a simple, a simple um, 
uh, scenario that we might think of because you used the enslavement or slavery before. Somebody who was enslaved turning against a slave master or, or expressing some, you know, the, uh, resistance or, or disagreement or whatever at all, it surprises the slave master. They can, and why would you even, and you know, I don't know, you know, so many reasons, you know, you're going to get beat, whipped for it, you know, you're going to whatever, why would you be, but they can't, you know, understand that the, the human nature and human desire for, you know, is, is stronger than anything that they actually, that the, the things that they put forth. And so, um, but you asked me about, yeah, so, that there, and then there's, there. Their their heads their um influence is waning. So as we used to we keep using we've used before and we need to use it more. The crisis of legitimacy, the race to the bottom, you know that kind of stuff. That they race to the bottom in because they're insistent, uh, and the in the in their ways is only is only destructive to the world. So it becomes a race to the bottom. But then their crisis of legitimacy spreads, and like Ajamu just expressed, even their tactics you know seem to not work. We there's we refer to the the comparable class in Africa, you know, those who are doing the thing, and because there's not much, there's not much of a a pink tide or anything like that. At least at the leadership level, when it comes at the the level state, the level of governments in Africa, like there is in Latin America, but. In spite of the fact that, the, that there's some comparator interest that seem to, and that means, you know, the pe- people who are actually uh, working, you know, for the interests of, of more foreign forces and, and to, for their own personal uh, gain, as opposed to the people that they're supposed to be representing. That's what a comparator is. But in spite of that, when when a, some, a situation of the multipolarity in the world, like, you know, how France, I mean, I'm sorry, not France, uh, I meant to say uh, China. Um, has emerged as a global power. They have not done so the way that the colonial West has with against the war and repression and whatnot that that they're that they take uh, undertaken since colonialism. They've done it through other means, which opens up for other even the compradors a different way of doing. Oh, we we have an alternative. We don't have to go depend on the West for that. And in fact, there's some things there that we even appreciate about that alternative versus. The you know arrogant gangsterism you know things that the West imposes you know on the and then they have to also contend with their the people their people in their countries that are rising up that don't appreciate them you know as much you know at all and are and uh, they're under threat all the time of being overthrown so why not wouldn't we rather deal with somebody like China that's not going to impose things that's you know more bilateral in terms of the relationships that doesn't put conditions on it and all that. And this is something that the, the West can't, but even now we see that they can't understand, but even now we see them actually trying to, and this we'll see a lot of this in the summit, and we saw that a lot of it when Blinken, Anthony Blinken, and the Kim Remote House was visiting, and uh, no, uh, Linda, Linda, uh, oh, uh, Greenfield, yeah, Thomas yes. Greenfield, when they visited Africa, they are trying to, they're trying to rebrand themselves. They, they've even made so many statements that this is because of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time, gentlemen. But thank you very much. Uh, we've had Ajamu Baraka and Netfa Freeman. Don't forget, go to blackallianceforpeace.com to find out about their week of action um, next week. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow. Uh, We look forward to talking with you all Monday right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 